Please now welcome to the stage the BBC arts editor, Will Gompert. Edith, I suppose the, the, the first question on my mind is, when you go around the exhibition at the Royal Academy, it, it's enormous. I mean, it's taking up a huge amount of space. How rare is that, and how difficult is it to put an exhibition of that size together? Um, it is rare to, to, to devote so much space to one exhibition, and indeed to one artist. Um, what was interesting about it, when we, when we first offered David the show, the footprint, the actual number of galleries that we offered to him, was slightly smaller than what he ended up with. I kind of got a hunch once we, we were underway and he was, he was painting at, at, at a very, very quick speed and producing such extraordinary works that we were going to have to free up more space for him. So we, were, we managed to pinch a few more galleries. He would have moved into the shop and the restaurant <laughs> if he could because there was, he got to that stage, there was no stopping him. But in terms of, of organization and putting it together because of all of these different, different media as well that we were working with, the film work and the iPad work, it was, it was complex. How did you structure the show? Because it's not just all the modern paintings. You go right back to the beginning of his career. There's, there's a portrait he did there of his father, isn't there? When he, is, is, that's right at the beginning of the show, isn't it? It's not. No, there, oh. is, there isn't. Um, I'm sure I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> there is a very early work, though. We, we were very determined that it wasn't going to be a retrospective because that's the typical thing to do with a living artist is to do a retrospective exhibition of his complete career. We wanted it to be current and what's very interesting actually is that David now says that he thinks we took a risk. It didn't feel like a risk to us at the time. We knew he was going to produce extraordinary work and by that, the time we asked him he'd already embarked on a lot of new work in, in Yorkshire. We had to we felt that it was very important to have a retrospective element within the show because it was, it was that notion of trying to put the point across that landscape has always had a place in his work and the preoccupations around landscape have always been present. And, and a lot of the, 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 the things that he's trying to work through in the early works, you can see them coming to a sort of culmination in the later pieces. And it is a wonderful room. You see some works that he produced as a student in 1957 in Bradford. Yeah, there is there's, yeah, yes. Very good. But after that, he goes to LA, and there's several of those landscape pictures, aren't there? There are, yeah. I mean, what was very interesting is that he, he left England because he felt it was very grey, it was very dark, and he wanted to go for the light and, and the colour. And we just see one on the screen here, which is, is, is very, very exuberant, full of the, the colour of California and the joyfulness of the landscape that he, he found there. And that there are some of those works there, which are really rather wonderful, including the Grand Canyon work, of course. What we all want to know, of course, is what's he like to work with? Um, he's extraordinary to work with. I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to know him for about 15 years, and um, uh, to work with him closely means that you kind of enter his world. So, so uh, myself and, and, and Marco Livingston, who co-curated the exhibition with me, used to go up and down to Bridlington all the time, and we'd stay in his house, and we'd, we'd, we'd go to his studio, and we'd go out and watch him painting, and, and, and that was a, a wonderful thing to do. And because it wasn't a retrospective, because it was focusing on mainly new work, he was very, very happy to be involved, and it, it, we managed to achieve a level of engagement from him in the way that we put the show together that was quite extraordinary, actually, and I think the show has enormously benefited from that. I remember going up to his place in Bridlington and going along and, and talking to him. He said, oh, do you mind just hanging on a minute? He hopped up, got a paintbrush out, got a bit of yellow paint, dabbed it on his painting, sat down again and said, okay, where were we? Yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary that... Yeah. 
actually what's happening is all he's ever thinking about really is his paintings. And, and two, that he just had an idea. that He must have been thinking, oh, I know, a little yellow dot. And I'm talking about a, you know, a, a full stop size yellow dot yes. would make all the difference. Yeah. And when you go and see the show and you look at those paintings and you take a really close look, there is actually loads and loads of different brush strokes and dots and bits of impasto. They're very, very complex. And yet, when you stand back, they look quite simple. They do look simple, actually, from a distance. But I mean, it is remarkable, that obsessiveness that you're, you're talking about. And he has, this, um, he has this pattern when he's working. In whatever medium, actually, he'll take a picture of the work halfway through. He'll put it on his bedroom wall, blow it up as big as it'll go. He falls asleep looking at it. He wakes up in the morning looking at it. He works out exactly where it's going to go next. So it is this, this continual looking. The thing about the show, which I suppose is particularly striking, not just the colours, is when, when you go and look at it, there, there are these enormous canvases, you know, you know, metres wide and long, and there's no way one piece of canvas could be structured in such a way you can make just one painting, which makes the whole thing very complicated because he's, he's dealing with frames of you know, 12 different items brought together, where you can see six yes. here, for example. Yes, that's right, yeah. How, how does he do that, and how does he do it so successfully? Well, I mean, this is an interesting one, actually, because this, was, this work, although it's very, very large and done on, on six canvases, the grid system, he did that outside. That was directly from observation. So he had three easels with the two paintings on each easel, really? all abutted. So, just, just, so he's got three easels mm -hmm. outside, yeah. and he's got three... Canvases. Two, two canvases and each easel, two, say, making up his six. And he loved that physicality of having to move his, his arms, sweeping across this huge expanse. Um, obviously, when he's painting even bigger than that, he, he has to do it quite differently. And a lot of the bigger works are done in the studio because it's just, you know, that's really as big as you can go when you're painting outside. And the way he works, I mean, again, there's an awful lot of work he's produced in the last four years to fill up yes. the huge yeah. spaces of the Royal Academy. Yeah. Is he very rapid in what he does? And is he always satisfied with what he produces? Um, it's a really interesting question, actually. And I, I, I think what he does is that he knows where he's going before he does it. So before he puts a brush on the canvas, before he puts the charcoal in the paper or the stylus on the, on the, on the, the iPad, he knows exactly what he's going to do. And I've, I've never known him to discard anything. So in a way, you could argue the work is, is, is slightly conceptual. In so, in so much as he's thought about it beforehand, he knows what he's yes. going to do. He's not yeah. sitting in front of the motif and working it out. Um, there's, there's a bit of both. I mean, what's really interesting in this exhibition is you get the ones where he is sitting in front of the motif and working it out, and he works it out for a long time. So by the time he puts his, you know, he starts the work, it's it, it's there. And then there's the works for memory and imagination, which are in the, the exhibition as well, which he he tackles in a very different way. There's something that strikes me when I look at his work of um, Cezanne, Paul Cezanne, yes. who famously said when he started painting his post-impressionist style, is, is, no, this, is not, this is not what I see, but is this what I see? He was never sure, and he yes. came up with this idea so yeah. that we, we, look, we have binocular vision, we look at things from different perspectives, and quite a lot of that looking and that, that, that discipline about really staring at the object and looking at it from different angles, which you see here, seems to me to draw a lot on Cezanne. It does. It does draw a lot on Cezanne. I mean, David's got a very interesting view about looking because he says we see psychologically. So all of us see it in a very different way because it, it, it's, it comes through the prism of our memories and our memories of, of, of space is something that we can't, we can't divorce from what we're actually seeing. 
And it is that, that kind of extraordinary thing that, that, that it's much more complex than we would, we would imagine it is. I mean, here's had a sort of a, a slightly tempestuous relationship with seeing. Yes. I mean, if you go back to those early pictures from California and those images which are made up of montage of photographs taken from all sorts of different angles, like a, like a collage, which are fantastic. He then went off the camera. You know, he, just, he decided it, it did, you know, the human eye could give much more than the camera, and mm. yet he's now come back to the camera in different ways. Can you just take me through that yeah, that, journey that, a bit? Yeah, that's a very interesting journey, actually, because he, he, um, he always used the camera from the 1960s, but really as an aid memoir, and it wasn't until the 80s that he embarked on the photo collage work, which has got a lot to do with cubism and his love of Picasso. And of course, what he was able to do in a classic work like Pear Blossom Highway, which is one of the images that comes up here, um, he's able to, um, to stretch perspective. I mean, what he's doing is creating all of these different points of perspective using the camera and, and, and also making the point that the camera really needs to be stretched. You can't have one point of perspective. It's not quite enough. You've got to, to stretch it into to, to multi-perspective. Yeah, he said to me, it's quite an interesting point. He said that what the camera has done is it's, try, it's taught us that there's only one way of looking. Yes, yeah. And I, this is Pear Blossom Highway, actually, which is quite an extraordinary work. And I think is one of the ones that, that, that um, gives this sense of how he's stretching perspective, but also this notion of seeing them um, psychologically, how one side of the canvas is what the driver sees, which is um, all of the road signs and all of those things you need to drive safely and tell you where to go. And the other side is what the passenger sees, where your eyes are allowed to roam and, and in an undisciplined way. So you're seeing something quite different. It's, it's fantastic when you see a picture like this, because you just look at it as the viewer, and you don't think about the artist, do you? And yet, of course, when he's making this picture, he's on a stepladder in the middle of yes. God knows where, taking photographs, looking decidedly odd. And police people used to keep coming up to him and saying, uh, what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. He's an oh, an artist. It's quite normal. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Which he didn't get in Yorkshire, of course. That was a wonderful thing about working in Yorkshire, that no one was stopping him. But um, you know, what's very interesting about the culmination of these works, and Pear Blossom Highway was very much the culmination of the photocollage work, is that he came to the, the conclusion that however you try, you can't actually photograph space. Yeah. You can only paint space. And in the exhibition, we have a photo collage of the, um, of the Grand Canyon, but we've also got a painting of it. And it's a very interesting comparison to make, that the, um, the, the painting gives that, that whole sense of the evocation of space and the, the different perspectives as well, using the grid system. Why? I mean, it's, it's, I, I, the, I, I totally see the point that when you take a camera, that it compresses the sense of space. Mm. But why? What, what does it do, and what, or what does a painter do which overcomes that problem? I think what, he's, what he does is it's that notion of depth that he's able to get with the painting. It's because he's using the grid system in the, the Grand Canyon works that he's actually utilizing it to give himself different points of perspective, which are very linked to the film works in the exhibition as well. Um, and he's able to play with scale. He does it on an enormous scale. So actually you feel as if you're, you're, when you're standing looking at that work, there's an extraordinary feeling of, of looking into the abyss. Mm. There is a, a very strong sense of being present. So there he was in LA, happy and warm. Yes. And then he comes back to Yorkshire, yes. goes east to Bridlington, mm. and decides to make that his Giverny in a way, or his Arles. Yes. It suddenly yeah. becomes this major subject yeah. in his career. Yeah. Why? Um, I think there's a couple of things that led to that. One of them was that he, um, he visited his mother, who lived in Bridlington. He was a very dutiful son, he used to go, go home to see her regularly, but only for a couple of days at a time. 
Um, but he had a very good friend, Jonathan Silver, who lived in, um, in Yorkshire, and, and sadly, Jonathan was dying, and, and David um, went to see him and traveled through the countryside, very familiar from his youth, every day for about six months to visit Jonathan at his bedside. And Jonathan had always urged David to paint Yorkshire. Um, and when David got back to LA, that's what he did in the studio. And it was the, the, we've got all of those pictures that he painted during that period, and there is a real sense of, um, uh, 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 lost memories of, of this, this friend that had died, um, a, a, a landscape that he had re-engaged with. After he did that work from memory and imagination, he did his book, The Secret Knowledge, yeah. where he w did an in-depth study into how artists in previous centuries had used um, the lens, really, um, to, to, to help them to, um, to paint. And he puts forward the argument that the, the lens or the, the, the camera really has affected how artists have drawn since the 16th century. Um, when he got to the end of that, he actually had quite what, a, a... What was his argument? His argument was that the, the lens had influenced how people have painted. But in, since a, ne the in a negative way, because they, they were committed to this mathematical perspective. Well, or? I mean, I don't think he took a judgment on right. that. I mean, I think when he talks about Caravaggio, he said, well, Caravaggio understood everything about cinematic lighting. You know, he was, he was using these implements and yeah. he understood it all. So he wasn't, he wasn't judging it. He just came to the conclusion that it had influenced how people had, had, had painted. And he personally, at the end of that process, um, had taken rather a jaundiced view of, of how the dominance of the lens mm. and decided that he wanted to strip all of that away and go back in a very old-fashioned way to the countryside and stand and observe. And it was Yorkshire... Like the Impressionists had done. Like the Impressionists, yeah. Yeah. exactly. And he returned to Yorkshire. But what was it about Yorkshire? What was it about the, the colours or the light or the atmosphere or the space, which is very important to him? I, he had rediscovered um, what he had missed all those years ago, that it had this enormous sense of space and light. You know, Bridlington is by the sea. He benefits from the reflected light from the sea. Oh. So there are... And he loved the seasons. That's the other thing that he didn't appreciate when he was a young man. But having spent three decades in L.A., and coming back to Bridlington and, and, and realizing this, this wonderful change in the seasons that you get, particularly spring and, and, and autumn, that, that really captures his imagination. And, and what did you feel when you started to see these works coming through? Because they are so unusual. I mean, I've never, I don't think anybody's ever seen landscape paintings like this yes. before. Uh, I mean, he's often called a pop artist, which I think is probably incorrect, but they have a poppy feel to them. They do. I mean, I agree with you that's incorrect. And David himself never really felt that he fitted into that category. In fact, he doesn't really feel he fits into any category. And it was an extraordinary thing to watch them coming through and to watch how he was... You, you felt at times that he was diverted and he was going down a, a, a different route and moving away from the, the, the whole focus of the exhibition. But actually, he never was. It's just that his, his ability to explore in different areas is insatiable, actually. But why these colours, Edith? What's he, what's he seeing? Because when I go to Bridlington, yeah. <laughs> to be absolutely honest, I don't see an awful lot of purple. You don't see a lot of purple, no. I don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the, what, what's, what's interesting about that, he, 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 David sets up these rules for himself and then breaks them. So he decided that the thing to do was to sit in the countryside and paint directly from observation. And in one of the earlier galleries by observation, the colors are very, they're very truthful. You know, it's a, the, the yellows of spring and, and, and luscious greens. Mm. But then 
a couple of years later, he's back in the studio again, so he's giving himself artistic license. He's beginning to celebrate the colors that you see in winter and saying, actually, winter's not gray and dull. There are colors there. And he's enhanced it. He's, 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 um, he's got terribly excited about the colors that are there and, and, and brought them up to a different I mean, level. And, and is that to express his own feeling about what he's seeing? Is, is, are they, those colors sort of subjective in that sense? Or are they genuinely what he's actually seeing in that moment? No, I think that there's a subjective element to it. And of course, you can see other influences come in. There's a very strong Fauvist influence in some of those yes. works. And yeah. there's one of the ones of Blossom where he, he goes from working outside and, and, and faithfully reproducing the Blossom to working in the studio and using memory and imagination. And suddenly you get a Van Gogh sky and this fairy tale quality to the work. And, and for him, that just flows. For us, it's quite an extraordinary thing to see. But for him, it all makes sense to, to move from one, one way of working to another. He is something of a, an iconoclast in the way he approaches life yes, and yeah. his work. And he's like many great artists, and he is. People call him the greatest living British artist. He's one of the greatest artists in the world. He's an extraordinary talent. But the idea that he's taken on the landscape in such a vivid way in his 70s is, is, an, is, is, is remarkable, as is his um, adoption of new technology. Yes. You know, my parents are quite old, and they can't turn a computer on. He's made it into an art form. He has, yeah, yeah. And he always has. I mean, he was, he was one of the first people to have a fax machine. And I, he, he, he did the printing in the fax machine. And he, he did, yeah. And they were, that was an extraordinary group of work. And I think just looking back to that period, it does give a sense of how he was able to master the iPad because he... Um, he talks about the printing that a fax machine could do, and he said there's no such thing as a bad printer. A printer can either print or it can't. You work out how it prints, and then you adapt the drawing to make sure that what you put through it is effective, and it, 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 it works. Um, and he's done exactly the same with the iPad. What has he done with the iPad? How should we view those images on the iPad? So, because I suppose in our own minds, we tend to have sort of a sense of um, we rank different sorts of art, don't yes. we? And, and, yeah. and the idea of an oil painting on canvas in a nice frame is considered to be absolutely A-list. That's the pinnacle. And the yeah. pr prices tend to reflect that, don't they? It's yeah. And yet digital art, and that in a way is what the iPad yes. work is, it, yeah. is it, people are quite sniffy about it. Do you think Hockney is challenging and changing that perception? If he is challenging that perception, it's not really what he's setting out to do. I mean, I think that one of the things that you can um, take from his, his iPad work is that it's got all of the painterly qualities of a painting, and he calls them drawings. So effectively, he sees himself as drawing. Um, so are they preparatory sketches, or are they works in their own right? They're works in their own right. Yes, very much. Very much. So he prepares for them in the same way he's prepared for an oil and canvas, um, and is able to execute them probably uh, the same amount of, he devotes the same amount of time to them. I was interviewing him for the telly, and, and I, he got his iPad out, and he said, oh, I'll show you how it works. So he, well, he turned the iPad on and started doing a drawing. And there was two things that I thought were, um, what brought me up short, actually. One was the speed at which he yes. can draw. I mean, really, it's whoosh, 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 whoosh. And second, it's like a virtuoso. He's, 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 he moves his arms and his wrists and his hand like a, like a ballerina, mm. just with just, mm. this beautiful mm. grace and, and this sort of mm. elegance and swiftness. I was really surprised. Yeah. Um, and you know, that's how he chose to work. Yeah. 
I think it, it, it's very interesting. He does. I mean, it's extraordinary to see him draw, and drawing's very much at the heart of everything he does. Yeah. And we've got some charcoal drawings in the exhibition which are unbelievably beautiful. I'm yeah. sure you, you spotted them. It's, mm. it's, it's the ones that every, everyone would like to walk away with. And they're extraordinary. And he, he talks about many of the processes he undergoes as drawing. Obviously, he talks about drawing on the iPad as drawing. He talks about um, the composition of the, the photo collage work as essentially drawing. As he does the, the film work, the adjustment of the camera to get the, the different perspectives right, he refers to that process of drawing and talks about drawing being at the heart of everything that he does. So we have this gallery full of these iPad yes. printouts. Are they good, do you think? I think they're amazing. Why? I think they're absolutely amazing. Um, I think they have got the quality of paintings. I think that they've got the luminosity that you get in the screen for the iPad work, which is extraordinary that he's able to replicate that. Um, what, what's been lovely for me, actually, is, is working with David through this long process, because we started in 2007, when he had got his iPhone. Um, the first thing he did was to start to draw on it, and he drew on it with his thumb, so he was able to hold it in his hand and draw on it with his thumb, and he loved that because he could have a cigarette in the other hand, <laughs> so it didn't, you know, for the first time he was able to paint and smoke at the same time. Mm. And, and those of us that were lucky used to receive a bunch of flowers every, every morning, which is just the most extraordinary thing, so you'd get one of those. When the iPad was, was, um, came out, he was the first person I knew to have one and was just unbelievably excited, couldn't wait for it to be sold here, sent over to America for it, and immediately started to draw on it, using a stylus, actually, because that, that felt so familiar. And, and like everything else he does, like the photo collage work, like watercolor, he just works obsessively to master it. And of course, all of those, those um, the experience of draftsmanship and painting have been put into his creation of, of drawings on the iPad but he's been able to very skillfully use all of the, the, the things that you can do in the iPad, like building up layers of background color, mark making, increasing size to get the, the detail right. He's been able to do all of that to, 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 to produce these wonderful compositions. And then at the end of the show, there is this room which has got 12 television screens uh, on which Hockney has made these visual art works, which are 12 screen images, rather like the painting thing here, all of the same things. And you, I have to say, before I saw them, I thought, hmm, probably, you know, not that good, a bit naff, a bit gimmicky. But actually, when I, you go and look at them, and actually when my nine-year-old son looked at them, he was mesmerized. There is something, without sounding, wishing to sound too fancy, there's something very poetic about what yes. he's achieved there. Yeah. Can you just talk me through what he was trying to do and how, and how he how he actually practically went about making those works? Well, he started um, filming the landscape and going back to the same scenes and motifs that he was painting. He started filming it in about 2009 and it was done in a single camera. What was very interesting, although it was kind of very jerky and very kind of rudimentary at that stage. Single what, film camera. F film camera, yeah. exactly. What was very interesting was that it, it, it was this notion of him moving through the landscape, and so many of his works of the landscape have got a pathway or a road inviting in. It's all about moving through. It's this, this understanding how the Chinese see landscape and moving, you know, that it's man's journey through landscape that actually is a thing that, that's exciting. And um, quite quickly, actually, he moved on to the nine cameras. What he does is he's... Um, he's made a, a, a grid, a, a, a kind of support thing that he fixes 
nine cameras onto. So and, like, a, like a frame? It's a frame, yeah, absolutely. Mm. And they're all attached to this. That, that frame is then attached to the bonnet of his car, and he drives very slowly through the landscape, um, mostly through Wolgate, filming the scene. And the, the manipulation of the angle, as I said before, is, is what he refers to as drawing. So you get this, this very um, expanded perspective. So, so when we're looking at these films, and that you, you, know, you drive very slowly along a country lane, and you see these changes, they, just, they're, they're, they seem to be very smooth. There's no edits. But there must have, to, to bring nine cameras together like that, they must, there must be some technology. There must be some editing going on to bring them into harmony. Not much. Really? No, really not much. I mean, he was just kind of editing down the length, but, but basically right, that was Edith. exactly when how... When they go to 12 screens and he hasn't right. got 12 cameras, how does he do that? Well, he only does that in the studio. He can't do that in the car. And that's, um, that's done by... Um, he, there's an extraordinary series of, of, um, of dance sequences, which I'm, I'm sure you saw, yep. with, where, where David worked with um, Wayne Sleep, who's a, an old friend, a choreographer and dancer, and some dancers from the Royal Ballet. David... Um, made the stage set at his studio, which was very, very brightly colored, very Matisse in feel. There were lots of his pictures in the background. And Wayne had choreographed this extraordinary dance um, that, that um, and with live music. And it was filmed on 18 cameras, again, using all of these Is different 18 points. 18 cameras? 18. All of these different points of perspective. And it's, it's the most extraordinary, joyful piece. Um, nothing to do with the landscape, and even I can't argue that it, 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 but it's a wonderful thing to have. And I think actually it's a, it's a sense of direction of where he might be going next, because really I think the point he's making in all of the film work is that we can't be limited by one, by one single view anymore. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to take a couple of questions from the floor. I just want to ask you one other question sure. just on, on, on the landscape, because I started off by saying it's exciting to see somebody of Hockney's status and ability taking on the landscape. What do you think is brought to that genre? Um, I think the sense of scale has been very important, and I think that's something that he has brought to the genre, that he's, he's moving away from this notion of the landscape as the window onto which we, through which we look onto the world. And it's, it's, he's not just painting bigger because he can, he's painting bigger because it, it creates a very different experience. You're, you're completely immersed in the, in the landscape, you're there, you're inhabiting it as a viewer. And I think that's one of the important things he, he brings. And, you know, when you look at the tradition of landscape painting in, in, in Britain, which he's very aware of, um, he does have his place now. I mean, I think, you know, as, as, as Constable was to Suffolk, I think Hockney now is to, um, to East Yorkshire. I think he definitely is right. Very good. Thanks, Edith. Have we got any, uh, any questions? Yes, this gentleman here. Just, just wait for the... Uh... Yeah, the, uh, apart from smoking, he seems an extraordinarily tolerant person, but at the same time, I think, looking at this sort of work and thinking of the discipline, extraordinarily tough. How does that go? Um, yes, he, I mean, he is tough. He's pretty hard on himself. I mean, it, you know, particularly for this exhibition, I think he's possibly worked harder than he's ever done in his life, and he's already, you know, he, he sets himself very high standards. Um, and yes, he is very tolerant. He's very interested in the world around him, even though his, he's totally dedicated to producing work. He, he's very interested in what's happening um, in, in the world. He's, he's a great reader of newspapers, but he's, he's, out of all of the artists I know, he's the one who visits the most exhibitions. He's extraordinarily knowledgeable about art history. He's also very funny, isn't he? Oh, he's great company, isn't he? But I think you see some of the wit and verve yes, in those yeah. paintings. I think we all take something, we can take art too seriously. 
And actually, well, I think one of the great things about Hockney is he's so optimistic. Yes. He does see the joy in life. Yes. You know, he's not a cynic. No, he's not a cynic. He's not a cynic at all. And yeah, yeah I completely agree. And I think that that sense of, of, of playfulness and joy and humor first came out when he was a student, when he did some of the, the early work with the writing in it in the, in the 1960s. And it still is there today. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Fresh Flowers exhibition in Paris was almost all shown on iPad, so displayed actually physically yes. on the iPads he yeah. drew on. Uh, whereas at the Royal Academy, they're printed up on the wall. Is that because of the amount of people who are going to be seeing it? No. Was that carbon footprint? What was the issue? No, no, it's not that at all. It's, it's a development from his perspective. I mean, he's moved on considerably since the Fleur Fresh exhibition. And what he realized in, um, in January 2011 was that he, um, he could actually draw on the iPad knowing that he was going to print it out into a different size. So he knew that the software was there to enable him to do it. And he knew that he could manipulate the image in terms of form and color um, and detail to make sure that it worked on a larger scale. So that, that's why. So it really was. It's, it's, it really is the next step forward. Can I? Uh, oh, yes. Question. Yeah. Yep. In the room where the um, iPad images are, there's that huge painting on the end wall. Yes. When you were curating, was that something that, I mean, how did that come about? Because when you look at the painting, uh, well, my husband's a painter, and he said the painting's still the best. But um, I just wonder what your take on that was. Um, well, I think that whole room is, is quite extraordinary. I mean, that's the biggest room in the academy, and it's the one that David loves the space. He's very familiar with the, 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 the space, the, the galleries in the, in the academy, and that was always the biggest challenge for him. And the, the whole um, concept of in, this installation came up quite late. Um, and he did the iPad drawings first, and then he did the painting. What was really interesting, actually, is that you know, he, he's, he's constantly changing as an artist and constantly evolving. And the difference in, in his mark making and that painting is quite significant from the previous painting he did, which was of Winter Timber. Um, yes, it is an extraordinary piece. He knows, as an artist, that he doesn't get the same texture in an yeah, iPad is. print. And he, um, yes, that's the one, which is, is a gigantic work. And he accounts for that in, in the composition. Um, What's interesting about that whole room and that, that big picture that we just saw, which is, is, is absolutely gigantic, is that it does feel like a stage set. And it owes a lot to the stage set designs that he did in the 1980s and that whole sensibility of, of them, the visitor feeling as if they're kind of center stage with the drama going on around them. And then maybe just looking at answering the second part of that question. Um, what do you think is better between huge oil painting like the one which is behind us or the, I, the iPad printouts, are they comparable or is the oil painting, oh, well, of course it's better because that's what it is. To the gentleman's point. To the gentleman's point, what is better? <laughs> um, I mean, for me, I'm fascinated by his use of oil. I mean, I, you, you can't get away from that. And there's, there's something... Um, I think when you go back to, to 2004, when he painted in watercolor for a couple of years and then went back to oil painting, you can sense that exuberance of going back to this very familiar, very pliant medium. And I think you sense it in this work as well. I asked him that question, but not about the iPad. I asked him about the, the multi-screen images. So I said, well, come on, David. You know, you got this. We were standing in front of this very picture. Yeah. And I said, well, come on, you've got this picture. Next door room, you've got these multi-screen images. 
which, which is better? And he just looked at me straight, straight down the eye and said, that's a daft question. <laughs> <laughs> and how far would you, would you push it, just for our sakes, to get an understanding of where you as a curator think Hockney sits within the canon? Would you compare these to Cezanne's paintings of Mont Saint-Victoire to uh, Monet in Giovanni to Van Gogh in Arles? Are we, in your mind, is, is that the sort of level he's hit here? Um, that's a very difficult question, actually. It really puts me on the spot. I think there are some pictures in the, the exhibition, particularly the early ones from, from Observation. We had Van Gogh in the Academy a couple of years ago. They remind me of it. I just feel as if, you know, the, the, the Van Goghs hadn't quite left. Um, that there's, a, there's a very strong evocation of Van Gogh there. Monet's Nymphias are, are a group of works, the water lilies, that have really influenced David. And I think those series, you know, he's got a couple of series in the exhibition where he's painted exactly the same scene, exactly the same size, from the same perspective, but at different times of day. And it, it, that, that goes back to the influence of, of, of Monet, because what you're looking for are those very subtle changes in light. Um, so it's all there. He's right up there, you think? I think so. Yeah. Any uh, questions? Well, the lady in the middle. I was just wondering if you could comment a bit more on what, besides the, of course, excitement that it's the Apple iPad, what it was as an artist that he particularly appreciated with this new medium, besides the just kind of fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think he, he describes himself as neither a technophile nor a technophobe. He doesn't, he's not one of these people that just loves new technology. What he loves is anything that, that gives him another way of painting, um, another way of, of creating art. And, and he, he used to travel around always with a sketchbook with him. He never was without a sketchbook. And he gets his suits made with a pocket inside, like a poacher's pocket, where a sketchbook used to sit. And now the iPad sits in there. Um, so he's, he's always got a tool with him to, to draw. What the iPad can do, and why it's been so important for, um, for, for landscape painting and for capturing the seasons, is that it's immediate. So he doesn't have to stop and mix up his paint. He switches it on. He knows how to get the colors. And he's able to get things down very quickly. So subtle changes in a, a you know, shadow being cast over a puddle on the road, he, he can get that really quickly. And I think the luminosity was a wonderful thing for him. He found that wonderful. He wakes up early in the morning. He gets out his iPad. He's able to get the sunrise you know, in this, this beautiful image. And he's not having to get up and mix paints. And, you know, it, it, it's that. And he, you know, he does claim that he thinks, well, you know, Van Gogh would have used this if it had been around in his time. You know, why wouldn't you? It's wonderful. That's great. I'm afraid that that's probably all we have time for. Um, but please put your hands together for Edith Devani, who's, I think, spoken beautifully and eloquently and informatively about David Hockney. Thank you. Thank you.